You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear the podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, StandardBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 271, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Art and Theory of Art, Foundations of a New Aesthetics. This is the last lecture. It is the twelfth part of the book, but the eighth of these eight lectures at the end, the end of the whole book. So it's numbered uh, Part 12.8. It's entitled The Psychology of the Arts, and it was given in Dornach on April 9, 1921, and this whole series was translated by Dorrit Winter and Clifford Venno. How should we speak about the arts? This is a question, I may as well say, with which I have been wrestling all my life, and I will allow myself to take my point of departure from two areas within which I made the attempt to pause in this wrestling. The first time was when, at the end of the 1880s, I had to deliver my lecture at the Goethe Society of Vienna, entitled Goethe as Father of a New Aesthetics. As regards what I wanted to say about the being of the arts, I felt at the time like someone who wants to speak but is mute and must therefore express what he means through gestures. The reason was that at the time, due to certain life circumstances, it was suggested that I speak philosophically about the essence of the arts. I had worked my way through from the philosophy of Kant to that of Herbart, and I encountered this Herbartian philosophy in Vienna through a representative, the aesthetician Robert Zimmermann. Zimmermann had completed his title History of Aesthetics as Philosophical Science quite some time earlier. He had also already presented his systematic treatise on title General Aesthetics as a Science of Form to the World and I had faithfully worked my way through what Robert Zimmermann, the Herbartian aesthetician, had to convey in this realm. And then during the lecture at the University of Vienna, this representative of Herbartianism was present. When I got to know Robert Zimmermann personally, I was entirely satisfied by the deep, soulful, excellent personality of this man. What lived in this human being, Robert Zimmermann, could only make an extraordinary and deeply sympathetic impression. I have to say that although Robert Zimmermann's entire bearing had something exceptionally stiff about it, I liked much that was in his stiffness, because the manner in which he spoke, out of the particular coloration that the German language takes on among those who speak with a Bohemian accent, using Prague German, using this particular nuance of German, was especially sympathetic to me. This Prague German of Robert Zimmermann made it possible for me to be extraordinarily sympathetic when he said to me, who had at that time already been intensively occupied with Goethe's theory of color, quote, Oh, Goethe is not to be taken seriously as a physicist. A man who could not even understand Newton is not to be taken seriously as a physicist. Close quote. And I have to say that the content of this sentence was entirely wiped out by the completely coquettishly gracious manner with which something like this could be conveyed by Robert Zimmermann, 
I really liked such opposition very much. But then, or perhaps it was already earlier, I got to know Robert Zimmermann when he lectured from the lectern as a Herbartian. And I must say that then the amiable, sympathetic man ceased to exist aesthetically, and a Herbartian at that. At first I did not know what to make of how this man stepped through the door, stepped up to the podium, laid aside his fine walking stick, took off his coat in a peculiar way, stepped in a peculiar way toward the chair, sat down in a peculiar way, took his glasses in a peculiar way, stayed silent for a while in a peculiar way, in a peculiar way looked out with his soulful eyes, once he had removed the glasses, to the left, to the right, into the distance over the modest number in the audience. There was something striking in it. But since I had intensively occupied myself for some time already with Herbartian works, it dawned on me immediately after the first impression, so that I said to myself, Oh, yes, there an entrance is made Herbartianly. There the fine walking stick is laid aside Herbartianly. There the coat is taken off Herbartianly. There is one who gazes in an Herbartian manner at the audience without glasses. And now Robert Zimmermann began to speak in his extraordinarily sympathetic dialect, imbued with its Prague characteristics of a practical philosophy. And lo and behold, this Prague German clothed itself into the form of Herbartian aesthetics. I had this experience, and then I understood well from the subjective standpoint of Zimmermann what it actually meant that as the motto of Zimmermannian aesthetics, on the very first page stood Schiller's saying, admittedly transplanted into Herbartianism by Robert Zimmermann. The true secret of art for the master lies in the eradication of matter through form. For I had seen how this amiable, sympathetic, thoroughly gracious man seemed to have eradicated himself as content in order to reappear in Herbartian form at the lectern. For the psychology of the arts it was an exceptionally significant impression. And if you acknowledge that one can make such a characterization, even when one is fond of a person, then you will not misunderstand my words here. Robert Zimmermann, whom I greatly honored, might forgive me for using the word anthroposophy, which he used in a book to designate a cardboard figure assembled of logical, aesthetic, and ethical abstractions. For using this word in order to consider the spiritualized and ensouled human being scientifically. Robert Zimmermann called his book, in which he carried out the procedure I have just described, titled Anthroposophy. When I delivered my lecture on, titled Goethe as Father of a New Aesthetics, I had to free myself of this experience, in which the so-called artistic element appeared to have been cast into a contentless form. I was able to take up Zimmermann's fully justified view that in art one is dealing not with content, not with the what, but rather with what is created from out of the observed content by human imagination and creativity. And we also saw how Herbart took this form from Schiller. I was completely able to accept what was thoroughly justified in this tendency, but I could not prevent myself from opposing it by arguing 
that that which can be achieved as form by real imagination must be raised up and must appear in the work of art in such a way that we derive from the work of art an impression similar to the one we otherwise get only from the world of ideas. Spiritualizing what the human being can perceive, carrying the sensory up into the sphere of the spirit, not destroying the material through the form. This was how I tried at the time to free myself from what I had taken up from the Herbartian aesthetics I had faithfully studied. Mind you, other elements also played a role. A philosopher of that day, whom I liked as much as I liked Robert Zimmermann, whom I valued extraordinarily as a human being, Edward von Hartmann, had written in all areas of philosophy, and it was just at that time that he also wrote on aesthetics, partly in a similar vein and partly out of a different spirit than Robert Zimmermann. And again, you will not interpret the objectivity I am striving for as if I intend to be unkind. The aesthetics of Edward von Hartmann can be characterized by indicating that he peeled something away from the arts, which actually were rather remote for him, that he then called the aesthetic illusion. He peeled away this so-called aesthetic illusion from the arts in a manner approximately resembling the flaying of a living human being. And then, after this procedure, after having, so to speak, flayed the arts, the living arts, Edward von Hartmann made this the basis for his aesthetics. And is it surprising that this peeled-off skin became leather under the hard use that it suffered through the aestheticians who stand so removed from art? That was the second thing from which I had to free myself at the time. And I tried to incorporate into my lecture something that I might describe thus. If a philosopher wants to talk about the arts, he must be able to have the capacity for renunciation, to become mute to some extent, and to indicate only through chaste gestures what can never really be penetrated by philosophical language, before which it must come to a standstill and indicate the essentials like a mute observer. That was the mood, characterized psychologically, in which I gave my lecture on titled Goethe as Father of a New Aesthetics. Then later the task came to me to consider for a second time the question I characterized initially today. It was while I gave a talk to anthroposophists on titled The Being of the Arts, and now, given the mood of the entire milieu at the time, I could not speak in the same manner. Now I wanted to speak in such a way that I myself could remain within the artistic experience. I now wanted to speak about art in an artistic way. And I knew again that I was on the opposite shore from the one I had been on at the time I delivered my lecture on Goethe as father of the new aesthetics. And I now spoke in such a way that I carefully avoided sliding into philosophical formulations. For I experienced how the actual being of art grows removed from the words when one slides into philosophical characterizations. At the time, the inartistic aspect of mere concept ransacked the forces out of which the talk emanated, and out of that mood I attempted to speak more psychologically about the arts, thus avoiding in the strictest sense sliding into philosophical formulations. 
Today I am supposed to speak again about the psychology of the arts. It is actually not especially easy to pause at any other point after one has inwardly experienced both of the other phases. I saw no other way forward than to turn my attention to life. I looked for some sort of point by means of which I could enter into life with my considerations of art. And lo and behold, I discovered, as if it were obvious, the delightful romantic poet Novalis. And if, after this encounter with Novalis, I then raised the question, quote, what is poetic? What is actually contained in this particular form of the artistic experience of poetic life? Close quote. Then the living figure of Novalis stood before me. Remarkably, Novalis was born into this world with a particular basic feeling that lifted him above outer prosaic reality for the entire duration of his physical life. There is something in this personality that seems gifted with wings to soar poetically above the prose of life, something that lived among us human beings as if it wanted to express once in the history of the world. This is how the outer sense reality relates to the truly poetical. And this personality of Novalis finds its way into life and develops a spiritual, utterly real love for the twelve-year-old Sophie von Kuhn. And all of this love for this sexually immature girl is clothed in the most wonderful poetry, clothed in such poetry that in considering this relationship one is never tempted to think of anything sensually real. But the uttermost ardor of human feeling that can be experienced when the human soul soars as though in poetic spheres above prosaic reality, the uttermost ardor of this feeling lives in this love of Novalis for Sophie von Kuhn. And this girl dies two days after the completion of her fourteenth year, at a time when other people are so strongly affected by the reality of the physical body that they descend into the sexuality of the physical body. But before this could happen for Sophie von Kuhn, she is taken up into the spiritual world. And Novalis decides out of a consciousness that is stronger than the instinctive poetical consciousness he had previously experienced, to follow Sophie von Kuhn into death in his living soul experience. He lives with Sophie, who is no longer in the physical world. And those who, with the deepest feeling for human nature, encountered Novalis after this time, said that he wandered about on the earth, alive, but like someone taken up into spiritual worlds, who speaks to something that is not on the earth, and does not really belong to the earth in reality. And he himself thinks of himself within this poetic, non-prosaic reality, in such a way that what others can see only by overcoming outer forces, the fullest expression of will reaching into reality, already appears within the poetically ideal world, and he speaks of, quote, magical idealism, close quote, when designating his life's direction. If we then try to understand everything that this wonderfully constituted soul could love without outer reality, without touching outer reality, the soul that could, in other words, live with what was really torn from it before a certain phase of outer reality had been attained, and if we engage with all that then flowed out of this soul, 
we receive the purest expression of what is poetical. And a psychological question is solved simply by entering more deeply into the stream of poetry that flows out of Novalis's poetry and prose. Then, however, we have a remarkable impression. We have the impression, if in this way we penetrate psychologically more deeply into the essence of the poetical, through the reality of a life, through the life of Novalis, so that we arrive at something behind the poetical, something that resounds through all that is poetical. We then have the impression as though this Novalis were emerging out of spiritual soul spheres, as though he brought with him something that overshadowed outer prosaic life with poetic radiance. We get the impression that there a soul, which bore its spiritual soul aspect in purest form, entered the world so that it ensouled and spiritualized the entire body and absorbed space and time into its soul constitution, which was spiritual and ensouled, in such a way that space and time, thus casting off their outer nature, reappeared poetically in the soul of Novalis. In Novalis's poetry, it is like a devouring of space and time. We see how his poetry enters into the world with strength of soul and strength of spirit, and out of this strength it arranges itself into space and time. But it overpowers space and time. Space and time melt because of the strength of the human soul. And in this melting of space and time, through the strength of the human soul, lies the psychology of poetry. But something like a deep foundation resounds through this melting of space and time in Novalis. We can hear it everywhere through what Novalis revealed to the world, and then we can do nothing but say to ourselves, whatever soul is, whatever spirit is, there it came to light in order to remain poetical, in order by acquiring space and time to melt space and time poetically. But, for the time being, something remained as the foundation of this soul. Something lay most deeply within the human soul, lay so deeply within it that it could be discovered as a sculpting force because it shapes the deepest relationships within the human organism. Because it lives as creative soul within the innermost region of the human being. In all of Novalis's poetry, music lives as a foundational element. Musicality, the resounding artistic world that reveals itself out of the harmony of the world, and that is also the element that creates artistically from out of the cosmos within the most intimate aspect of the being of man. If we attempt to enter into the sphere where the most intimate aspect of spirit-soul is creative within the human being, then we reach a musical shaping in the human being, and then we say to ourselves, before the musician sounds his tones into the world, the musical being itself has gripped the being of the musician and incorporated musicality, built musicality into his human nature. And the musician reveals what the world harmony laid into the foundations of his soul unconsciously. And that is the reason for the mysterious effect of music. Thereupon also rests the fact that as regards a comparison of what is musical with what is involved in speech, we can really only say, music expresses the innermost human feeling. And by entering into this poetry of Novalis, 
after having first prepared ourselves for it through the appropriate experiences, we grasp something I might call the psychology of music. And then we consider the end of Novalis's life, which took place in his twenty-ninth year. Novalis departed life without pain, but in devotion to the element that had resounded through his poetry during his entire lifetime. His brother had to play the piano as he lay dying, and the element he had brought with him so as to let it resound in his poetry, this was now to take him up as he died, out of the prosaic reality into the spiritual world. Novalis, at age 29, died as the piano resounded. He sought that musical homeland, which, in the full sense of the word, he had left behind when he was born, so that he might extract from it the musicality of poetry. This, I would say, is how we move from reality into the psychology of the arts. It must be a tender path, an inner path, and it must not be made skeletal by abstract philosophical forms neither those derived in the sense of Herbart from rational thinking, nor those that, in the sense of Gustav Fechner, are the bones of the external observation of nature. And Novalis thus stands before us, released by music, allowing music to resound in his poetry, melting space and time in his poetry, without touching the external prosaic reality of space and time in his magical idealism. And then, entering into musical spirituality once more. And the question may arise, if Novalis had been organized in such a way that he could have lived longer, if what spoke, suffused with musicality and poetry, through his poetry, in an inwardly effective psychology of the human soul and spirit, if this had not again returned to its musical homeland at age 29, but instead had lived on in a more robust physical organization, into what would this soul have found its way? Into what would this soul have found its way if it had had to remain longer in the prosaic reality it had left during the time when there was still time to return into the spaceless world of music without touching external space and external time? I am not interested in providing a theoretical answer to this question. Here, too, I would like to consider reality, and the answer is there. The answer has played itself out in further stages of development. When Goethe reached the age at which Novalis, in his musical, poetic mood, departed the physical world, there arose in Goethe's soul the deepest longing to penetrate into that artistic world which had achieved the most in the shaping of that being which can express itself in space and time. At that time in his life a burning desire arose in Goethe to travel south to experience in Italy's art something of the space and time that had given rise to an art which had understood how to carry what was authentically artistic into forms of space and time, above all into forms of space, and when Goethe stood before the Italian works of art that spoke out of space, not only to the senses but also to the soul, a thought arose in his soul. Namely, he realized how the Greeks, whose creations he thought he recognized in these works of art, had created as nature itself creates. And he believed he was on course to find their natural creative laws. And out of his soul and spirit there escaped the thought 
that there in the forms of space a religious feeling presented itself to him. Quote, there is necessity, there is God. Close quote. Before he went south, he and Herder had sought God in Spinoza, in the spiritual soul expression of the supersensory, in the external sense world. This mood which had urged him, along with Herder, to find his God in Spinoza's God had remained. But he was not satisfied. The God he had sought in Spinoza's philosophy came alive in his soul as he stood before the artworks in which he believed he divined the Greek spatial art, and the feeling overcame him. Quote, there is necessity, there is God. What did he sense? He evidently sensed how the creative impulse in the Greek arts of architecture and sculpture was what lived in the sole spiritual element of the human being, that which wants to emerge creatively into space, which gives itself over to space, and when it becomes a matter of painting, also spatially, gives itself over to time. And Goethe's psychological experience was the polarity of what Novalis had experienced. Novalis experienced how, when the human being penetrates his innermost self in space and time, and wants to remain poetical, musical, space and time melt in the human grasp. Goethe experienced how, when the human being works, chisels his spirit-soul aspect into space. This spirit-soul aspect does not melt what is spatial and temporal, but lovingly surrenders to the spatial and temporal, so that the spiritual soul aspect reappears, objectified, out of the spatial and temporal. How the human spirit and soul emerge without standing still at the sensory perception, without getting stuck in the eye, E-Y-E, so as to penetrate beneath the surface of things and create the architecture and form the sculpture out of the forces that hold sway beneath the surface of things. This is what Goethe experienced in the moment that led him to remark, quote, there is necessity, there is God, close quote. Therein lies everything that rests in the human unconscious out of divine spiritual existence that the human being conveys to the world without halting at the abyss that his senses create between him and the world. This is what the human being experiences artistically when he is able to push, chisel, force the spirit-soul aspects into the powers that lie beneath the surface of physical existence. What is it in Novalis that enables him psychologically to be musically, poetically creative? What is it in Goethe that drives him to perceive the greatest necessity of nature's creativity in the visual arts, to perceive the utterly unfree necessity of natural creation in the spatial, in the material artworks? What is it that drives him to say, quote, there is God, close quote, in spite of perceiving this necessity? At both poles, that of Novalis and that of Goethe, where one pole has the goal that must be adopted by the path that leads into the psychological understanding of poetry and music, and where the other pole has the goal that must be adopted by psychological understanding, if it wants to grasp the sculptural, architectural element, at both poles there is an experience, an experience that in the realm of art is undergone inwardly and it is art's greatest real-life task 
to also carry the following experience externally into the world, the experience of human freedom. In ordinary spiritual, physical, sensory experience, the spiritual soul aspect penetrates formatively as far as the organism of the senses. Then it lets the external, physical, material reality shine into the senses. And in the senses, external, physical, material reality encounters inner, spiritual existence and undertakes that mysterious connection which in physiology and psychology causes so much concern. Then if someone is born into life with an archetypal, poetic, musical disposition, which is constituted in such a way that it wants to seek a dying into the spirit under the influence of musical tones, then this spiritual soul aspect does not penetrate to the abyss of the senses, but rather ensouls and spiritualizes the entire organism, forming it into a complete sense organ. Then it places the whole human being into the world in the way that otherwise only happens when a single eye, E-Y-E, or a single ear is placed into the world. The spirit soul halts in the inner human being, and then, if this soul element confronts the material world externally, it is not taken up as prosaic reality of space and time, then space and time melt in human perception. This is the one pole. There, the soul lives in freedom without touching the ground of physical prosaic existence. Admittedly, it is a freedom that cannot penetrate down into this prosaic reality. And at the other pole lives the soul, the spiritual part of the human being, as it lived in Goethe. This soul and spirit aspect is indeed so strong that it does not only penetrate into the bodily physical part of the human being, to the point of the abyss of the senses, but penetrates these senses and even stretches beyond them. In Ovalis, I might say, there is a soul spirituality of such delicacy that it does not penetrate the entire sensory organization. In Goethe, the soul spirituality is so strong that it breaks into the entire sensory organization and extends beyond the boundaries of the human skin to insert itself out into the cosmos, and it therefore has, above all, a longing for an understanding of those realms of art which bear the element of space and time into the spirit-soul realm. That is why this spirituality is organized in such a way that it wants to descend beyond the boundaries of the human skin, into the ensouled space of sculpture, into the spiritualized spatial force of architecture, into the meaning of those forces which have already internalized themselves as forces of space and time, but which in this form can be grasped externally in painting. So here, too, it is a freeing from necessity, a freeing of what the human being is when his spirit and soul halt at the abyss of the sphere of the senses. Freedom in the poetic musical is freedom that lives in such a way that it does not touch the ground of the senses. The experience of freedom in sculpture, in architecture, in painting is freedom, but through such strength that if it were to express itself in ways other than artistic, it would shatter the external physical sensory existence because it would descend beyond its surface. 
That is what we perceive if, with proper understanding, we enter into what Goethe so urgently said about social ideas, for example, entitled Wilhelm Meister's Journeyman Years. Whatever we cannot entrust to outer reality, if it is to be shaped in freedom, becomes musical poetic. Whatever may not be developed through observation, up to the reality of the sensory physical idea, if it is not to disturb external reality, whatever must be left in the form it has been given by the forces of space and time, whatever has to be left in the mere reproduction of a block of wood because it would otherwise disturb what is organic, for which it signifies death, this becomes sculpture, becomes architecture. No one can understand the psychology of the arts who does not understand how more of the soul must live in the sculptor, in the architect, than lives in normal life. No one can understand the poetic musical without penetrating this more that lives in the spirit soul of a person who cannot allow this spiritual more, this spiritual overpowering of the physical organization, to arrive at the point of physical sensory, but instead must hold it back in freedom. Liberation, that is the experience present when art is truly grasped, the experience of freedom and its polar opposites. Within the human being lies his form. This form is suffused in human reality with what turns into his movement. In the human form, will penetrates from within, perception from without. And the human form is, first of all, the external expression for this interpenetration. The human being lives bounded if his will, his inwardly developed will, which wants to turn into movement, has to halt at the sphere in which perception is taken up. And as soon as the human being can become aware of himself in his entirety, the feeling will become alive in him. More lives in you than you, with your nerve-sense organization in interaction with the world, can bring to life within you. Then there arises the necessity of leading this resting human form, which is the expression of this normal relationship, into the type of movements that bear the form of the human figure out into space and time. If we attempt to hold this fast artistically, then between the musical poetic and the sculptural architectural painterly, eurythmy arises. I believe that in a certain way we would have to come to a halt in the arts if we were to attempt in what yet remains a stammer to speak about the arts and about what is artistic. I believe that not only are there more external things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in philosophy, as it is usually practiced, but that in the inner human being lies what brings about the liberation, at first within the artistic element, in the direction of the two poles, by entering into relationships with the physical bodily. And I believe that we cannot understand art psychologically by seeking to grasp it with the normal soul nature but that we can grasp it only in the higher spiritual soul nature of the human being, which extends beyond the normal soul nature and is inclined toward suprasensory worlds. And if we look at two such eminent artistic natures as Novalis and Goethe, then the secrets of the psychology of the arts are revealed to us phenomenologically, as I do believe they are, from out of reality. Schiller once 
experienced this with special depth when in reference to Goethe he said, quote, Only through the dawn of beauty do you press on into the land of knowledge. Close quote. In other words, only through living artistically into the full human soul do you struggle upward into the regions of the sphere toward which knowledge strives. There is a beautiful phrase. I believe it is an artist's phrase. Quote, Create, artist, do not speak. Close quote. And yet it is a phrase against which we must sin, because the human being is, after all, a speaking being. But as true as it is that we must sin when using such a phrase, quote, create, artist, do not speak, close quote. So it is equally true, I believe, that we always have to atone for such a sin, that we must always try when talking about the arts to create in speaking. Create, artist, do not speak. And if, as a human being, you are required to speak about the arts, then try to speak creatively, to create in your speaking. The end of the last lecture, 12.8, and that is the end of the book, Art and Theory of Art, Foundations of a New Aesthetics, by Rudolf Steiner, which contains an artist summary from 1888, four essays written between 1890 and 1898, and eight lectures held between 1909 and 1921, Translated by Dorrit Winter and Clifford Venno. Collected Works, Volume 271.